World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, Americhicks.com. All of these shows are archived there. And I am thrilled to have on the line with me Bill Galbraith. Uh, he is a World War II veteran. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, it is really great to have you on the show. And you were a paratrooper in World War II. Yes, I was in the 3rd Battalion, 506, I Company. Okay. And uh, did you jump in at D-Day? Yes. Okay, Bill, where did you grow up? I was born in Pasadena, lived there till I was nine, and uh, my folks split up, and so I moved around quite a bit. My mother was a nurse, and so I, I went and uh, stayed with her wherever she, you know, had a patient or something, and I finally moved to Long Beach. My mother remarried to an ex-policeman from New York named Dan Callahan. When the war came, I enlisted in the paratroops. See, at first, they told you had to enlist in the infantry, but they had changed that when Tacoa came on, so they sent me right from uh, Fort MacArthur to uh, Tacoa, Georgia. And this was 1942, is that right? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. And I was looking at some information that uh, I found about you, and it said that initially uh, you wanted to get into the Marines, but that didn't happen, did it? No, they said I was colorblind, which is ridiculous because I I have even sold paintings. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but you end up in the paratroopers. And I've always understood that the paratroopers got paid more than the other guys. Well, I joined the paratroopers because they got paid $50 extra for jumping. Okay, so tell us about basic training. What was that like? It was very intensive. It was like uh, the Navy SEALs or some of them. We had had a 150-mile march at one time all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, to the Alabama area at Fort Benning. Yeah, you guys really, you really were in shape, uh, and uh, basic training was pretty tough. Where did you go after basic training, Bill Galbraith? Well, uh, basic training was with the paratroopers at, at Tacoa, and uh, from Tacoa we went to made our jumps in Benning, five five qualifying parachute jumps at Benning. And then we went to Camp McCall in North Carolina from Benning. Okay. And we went on maneuvers down in Louisiana. Louisiana. And after maneuvers, we got back to we We ended up in Bragg. That's also in North Carolina. And from Bragg, we got all new equipment. We were sent to New York. And from Camp Shanks, New York. And from there, we were put on a ship and sent to England. We, uh, in England, we landed in Liverpool after about 10 days at sea. And uh, then 
from there we went to uh, Ramsbury in England, mm-hmm. which isn't even on the map, right? If you look on the map, it's not even on the map, but it's near Hungerford. And uh, we trained there from September until uh, June okay. when, when we uh, made the jump in Normandy. Okay. And uh, so what was the training like in England? It was a lot of night training even. We made the jump for uh, Churchill. Oh, really? Interesting. So what else, is there anything more that you'd like to tell us about that time uh, in England as you are preparing for the uh, going in at Normandy? There's a lot of uh, pub time. uh, They have pubs in England, which is like a bar, actually, Uh which everybody hangs out in. Somebody had told me, Bill, that if the Germans had been paying attention, that they should have known that something was up regarding the uh, D-Day. Somebody told me not to say invasion, but the D-Day rescue, let's say, as you guys rescued Europe. uh, I have read since the war that the German 6th parachute was brought out of Russia in May. There was that much ahead that they knew where we were going to be. When we jumped to Normandy, they were waiting for us. And they got three of our planes, which left only less than a platoon. I company was less than a platoon. When we got back to England, there was 27 enlisted men and four officers left in the whole company. How many total were in the company to begin with? About 130, I think. Oh, my gosh. That's pretty significant losses. I don't have the official number at all, but I think it's about 130. Okay. And there was 27 enlisted men and four officers left. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, let's talk about D-Day then. Uh, you, you've been doing your training, and I, I, my understanding, the weather was awful. Well, it's just typical English weather. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. And so when you realized that this was the real deal, that you were going to be uh, making the attack on uh, on Europe, what went through your mind, Bill Galbraith? We all jumped from C-47s. Okay. That's the old DC-3. It was the old passenger plane, that DC-3. That's the only aircraft I, I jumped from. We trained at night uh, and day in England, and uh, we really didn't get much uh, chance to uh, tour very much because uh, the longest leave we ever got, I think, in England was three days. We could go to London if we got a three-day pass, and uh, Ramsbury was about, I think, about 60 miles north of London. Okay. So when you got on the C-47 to for D-Day, what went through your mind at that time, Bill? Well, I, I uh, asked God to please <laughs> that I wouldn't show how frightened I was and that I wouldn't let my country or my family down. And uh, I also asked God to forgive me and the enemy for anything we might have to do, because we might have to kill somebody. Wow, Bill. That's uh, 
That's pretty amazing. Okay, so the the plane takes off, and you guys, you weren't very high, were you? I've heard stories of just kind of skimming the water. Is that what happened with your C-47? Oh, no, we jumped at about 500 feet. Okay, so they brought you in pretty low. That was so that you get you on the ground as as quickly as possible. And that was at 1 o'clock in the morning. And it was pretty dark. So we jumped into darkness and we could walk down on the tracers. The fire was so intensive that it actually looked like you could darn near walk down. Wow. So where did you end up landing? I landed right between Carentan and St. Comdemont, near the locks. Our objective was the two bridges on the Dove. My first sergeant broke his ankle. And he was the only person I met uh, on D-Day from my company. And it's just kind of unusual because he didn't jump before me. I'm not even sure he was in my plane. But I never saw Jim Brown or Young. Jim Brown jumped in front of me and Young jumped behind me. And I never seen either one of them. Ever again? And not on D-Day. Oh, not on D-Day. Okay. And then uh, I understand Young was our ammunition carrier, and he broke both ankles. So we never saw him all through Normandy. Okay. So you have, uh, so you've landed, and it's dark, and you guys are trying to come together. You've got these objectives that you need to, to go to work on. So once you've landed, what, what happened after that then, Bill? Well, uh, I had lost my leg pack. We had we jumped leg packs at Normandy, which we had never done in training. I think of it was about fifty percent of it was lost because they tore loose on the opening shock and, and just kept going. But I I didn't lose my weapon because I, it was in a scabbard on my uh, belt. So I had a carbine in a scabbard. So anyway, the first sergeant, I stayed with him, but he couldn't keep up because of, of uh, he could hardly walk. We was just left the hedgerow, and the whole group of people we had been trying to keep up with, uh, but couldn't, got caught out in the middle of a field. The Germans shot up a flare and uh, open up on them with the machine gun. And we we couldn't actually tell how many was hit because they all hit the ground, of course, as, as soon as the flare went up. Garrison and I had to stand in the open, perfectly still. They always taught us never move while a flare is up. And so we stood hoping that nobody would see us, and fortunately they didn't. So we moved back into the hedgerow and just stayed there until morning, from 1 o'clock till, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning. Okay. And did you have food with you? Oh, yes. Well, we did once we lost the leg packs. So we we were left for literally nothing. Okay. So the next morning, you and Garrison are together. What happens then that next morning on D-Day well, 2? Well, he had me make contact with somebody in our hedgerow, 
and the man had the radio to the cruiser off the, in the channel. First sergeant was had been worried because there was so much fire, and we were literally in the German lines. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I told this guy uh, that Garrison was worried that someone might call fire in on us, he said, you don't have to worry about that. I have the radio, and I'm not about to. Okay. So uh, we couldn't see where he was really doing anything. And so uh, Garrison, I, when I told Garrison what he had said and so forth, he, he had about four or five enlisted men with him. Garrison said he could go to hell and ask me to make contact with all the people we could see five or six hundred yards away from us out in the fields, and they were all just walking, but no one seemed to be firing on them or anything like that. And they were all exposed to the enemy because they were right out in the open field, but no one seemed to be firing on them. So I made contact with them. I, on the way over, I had a, some German tried to shoot me, and I could feel the bullets come by my face even from behind me and hitting the, in front of me in the dirt. And so I, I dove into a little depression in the ground. It wasn't a ditch or anything, just a depression. And they kept shooting at me, so I figured eventually they'd drop one in on me. So I decided I only needed one box of ammunition. I had two boxes of ammunition with me. I decided I only needed one and run the rest of the way across the field and made contact with the people we seed over there who found, I found out was with a 501. But Hove, a guy from my platoon, was with them. And so I talked Hove into going back to get Garrison. We got back to the edge of the woods to where we could see, you know, across the field. And here come Garrison, barely able to walk across that field that I had run as fast as I could across, getting shot all the way. But no one even so much as take a shot at him. And we got him to the uh, 501 medics. And then we just joined them because it's kind of nice to have company with this enemy all around you. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and with the, the bank of the Dove River taking an awful lot of fire, which we thought was mortars. Because we were green as grass. We didn't, had never been to combat. We didn't realize that it was actually a 40 millimeter that was firing at us. There was a guy hit on the locks. Uh, I said, let's go help him. So we got over there, and he was hit in the face. And and actually, Dove had to fix him up because I got sick. We fixed him up as best we could. So we left him on the locks and then went back for some reason, back to the edge of the canal of the river, and we thought everybody had went ahead of us while we were fixing him up. And so I, I said to uh, Hove, I says, well, 
we might as well try to catch up with those guys. We jumped up in the field in front of us. We knew it wasn't mine because it was full of cattle. And we jumped up and started running across that field. And we were running right straight at that 40 millimeter. And then it opened up on us and killed cattle all around us. Killed it and wounded it. We were laying there feeling sorry for the cows that were dying. <laughs> and actually, we couldn't move without that gun firing at us. So we stayed right there till it got dark. Okay, let's stop right there, Bill. We're going to go to break. And when we come back, let's continue with your story. This is Kim Munson with the World War II Project. We are talking with World War II veteran uh, Bill Galbraith, and he is part of the 101st Airborne 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. We'll be right back. Looking for an awesome place to host your draft party? Look no further than Hooters. With tons of TVs, free Wi-Fi, world-famous wings, and ice-cold beer, you're probably thinking, it doesn't get any better than that. But wait, at Hooters, it does. Every fantasy league gets a free draft kit and over $200 in Hooters swag. Join us for fantasy football done Hooters style. Book now at Hooters.com slash football. That's Hooters.com slash football. See you at Hooters. Welcome back to the World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, Americhicks.com. We have all of these shows archived there. I am absolutely thrilled and honored to be talking with Bill Galbraith. He is a World War II veteran. He uh, jumped in on D-Day with the 101st Airborne. Uh, He's part of the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And we're talking about, uh, is this the second day after D-Day that we're talking about, Bill? I stayed with the 501 until I seen them bomb the bridges on the Dove. Three P-51s came in and bombed the bridges that we had already taken. And so I left the 501. In fact, the lieutenant told me if I left, I would be shot for desertion in face of the enemy. And I says, which way is the damned enemy? We were five yards, miles behind the enemy lines, and he's going to have me shot. So anyway, we didn't pay the attention to him and went ahead and left. And what were you What were you uh, looking for? Were you looking for your company? Yes, I wanted to get back to my own company okay. of the 506. Got it. Okay. Because I, I was with the 501 at that time. Okay. So did you find the 506? Yes, when I got to the bridges, they were just leaving. They had been relieved by the 327 rider outfit. And uh, I was very fortunate because we might have had a hard time finding them if we didn't know where they went from there. But we, we got back with our company and found out that there was very few of us left. What went through your mind when you realized that you had lost so many of your colleagues? Lieutenant Wolverton had landed in a tree and was killed. And uh, our captain... McKnight was captured. There was only four officers left and literally no non-coms. And so uh, we more or less left on our own. But we still flew all the way through Normandy, not even a platoon, and still did everything we were supposed to be doing. Wow, that's amazing. What happened after the the battle of, at Normandy? What, what did you well, do after well, that? Well, uh, actually, the worst the thing 
got into in Normandy was a place called Bloody Gulls. It was uh, just west of Carantan, and uh, we were uh, trying to keep the uh, Germans from retaking Carantan. We, we put up enough resistance that they weren't able to retake it. But uh, we did bring in more help. They brought, they brought help up to us, uh, some Sherman tanks and stuff, finally. And uh, so uh, the Germans weren't able to take it. Well, tell us about the Battle of Bloody Gulch. Well, it was, uh, we had marched all night to get through to Carantan, and uh, we made the attack first thing in the morning. And somehow, uh, Jim and I, we, uh, we were machine gunners for I Company, but somehow we got with H Company, and... Uh, uh, Jim was, had got, was ahead of me, and uh, I had two boxes of ammunition, and uh, <clears throat> he had the gun, the tripod, and everything. And uh, I got stopped halfway across the field. There were three main fields at Bloody Gully, and uh, next to the road, and uh, with the actually with the 5-0, with, with the H Company for some reason. And it was, uh, uh, I, I saw somebody trying to bring up a machine gun through an opening in the road, and uh, in the hedgerow, rather. And uh, <clears throat> he would have been able to flank us if they got up that far. But anyway, then I got to Jim, and there was two wounded with him, and I tried to started fixing one kid up, and a bullet tore him right out of my hands and killed him. Oh. And so then I fixed up Lieutenant Christensen, who had been shot in the shoulder, <clears throat> and relieved him of his forty-five, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, Extra heavy all of a sudden. 
And anyway, we we left him. Uh, yeah, we got him into the gully and, and, and left him laying there. And uh, found out the next day that he hadn't died, and they were able to get him to the medics. But he had laid there all night long with no help. Fortunately, he died. Found out he didn't live. He he did not live. What dear? Um, what did, what did you find out? <laughs> About ten years after the war. Okay. <laughs> okay. That he I didn't find out until I read Ian's book. Uh, Tonight we die as men. That he lived because I thought he had died. Okay. Okay. Wow, I tell you, the, um, Bill, this is pretty amazing. And, and your memory to remember all of this from so long ago, 75 years. Uh, it's like yesterday. You cannot forget. You cannot forget. Okay. What's the next thing that uh, my listeners should, should know then? What happened after that? Well, as you know, uh, we jumped into Holland. Okay. So you jumped and, to Market uh, compared Garden. compared to Normandy, it was like a parade yard jump. Yeah, that's what I heard. Market Garden, you jumped during the day. Market Garden, yes. Right, you jumped during the day. we jumped into Zahn. Okay. That's about five miles north of Eindhoven. Okay. And uh, we were supposed to take a bridge on the uh, uh, Wilhelmina Canal. Mm-hmm. But the Germans blew it up before we could take it. And so uh, we were delayed overnight. Uh, and we went into Eindhoven in the morning. And uh, we were, I got to just, uh, Kylie was standing behind the uh, burned out German truck uh, on the road and uh, in front of a church about I would say a hundred 100, 150 yards uh, uh, in front of the church it would actually be south of the church and um, <clears throat> so uh, anyway uh there was still some fire, uh, but nothing seemed to be directed right at us. And I told Kylie, you better get down or you're going to get hit. And uh, I was on the other side of the road from him. And he said, if I get down, so will everybody else. And a bullet hit him in the throat. Mm. And I assumed I didn't see anyone in the church tower, but I assumed that that's the only place it could have come from. So I, I had an M1 at this time, and I put about four or five rounds up into the jump, jump up into that church tower, and uh, he didn't shoot anybody else. So I assumed I hit him. Mm-hmm. But I, then I tried to get in the church, but I, I was trying to uh, open the door in for some reason. 
and I never got it open. All I had to do was open it in. It was unlocked and everything. But anyway, I finally went up. To, I gave up and went up the street about, I would say, a hundred yards, close to a hundred yards. And a German machine gun opened up on me. And I stepped into a stone, uh, a brick doorway. And I uh, figured he could shoot it forever down the street. And uh, but then an 88 come in and hit across the street from me. And, and there was a guy by the name Copperstone who was standing right beside it. And I said, that was pretty close, one. And he said, it sure as hell was. And, and then another one came in and hit, and hit, uh, hit me in the knee, knocking me into the street. But the German machine gunner never opened up on me while I was laying in the street, thank God. And anyway, I kind of pulled myself back into the doorway in a sitting position. And just trying to keep out of that machine gun in case he didn't want to shoot me. And another one came in and hit me in the shoulder. So I decided that that wasn't a very safe place to stay. So, so I managed to push myself with just my, my uh, right leg down the sidewalk. And the glass was all piling up behind me. I don't know how I didn't get cut from the windows off the buildings that was right outside the street. And I got down to the next house, which is all, they were all connected. And uh, Pete Clotlock, I found out later was his name, opened the door and pulled me inside. And the minute I got inside that door, Bill Kidder, the medic, got to me, and Jim Brown and Madonna, who were both very good friends of mine. And Bill took one look at my leg, and he says, you're out of this war. And so he, he uh, fixed it up as best he could, and... Uh, I gave Madonna the 45 that I had got off of Christensen and told him good luck, I, you know, because they, they had to leave. And uh, both of them were killed at Foya way later. You know, that's your best stone. Oh, man. But then I spent the next three years in the hospital. Three years in the hospital? Two years, nine months, from September to, to June 1947. Wow, that's quite the story, Bill. Um, so th- th- that's a, I mean, that's a long time. How did, how did they patch you back together? What, what happened? How many surgeries? What there? How did they patch you back together? You were in the hospital for almost three well, years. Uh, that's cool. yeah. Actually, uh, uh, the uh, first hospital I went to was Hammond in Modesto. And uh, I had an osteo, that's a bone infection. 
So uh, I was sort of quarantined. And uh, a guy from my company, who I had never met, but he had talked to Jim Brown and stuff. So when he found out I was at Hammond, he came to visit me. He was also a patient in Hammond, and his arm was in an air, they call it an airport, airplane cast. It had a brace underneath his arm, and his arm was out, sticking out, you know, mm-hmm. the side. Well, with a brace underneath it. And he came to visit me, and when the nurse told him he had to leave, he says, I'm not leaving. You're putting me in the bed next to him. <laughs> and they had to. They put him in the bed next to me. And it was a real blessing because he ended up carrying my leg in that brace underneath his arm. I couldn't put my leg down because there was no circulation in it. And it was in a cast, of course. And I would put that leg in the brace underneath his arm and follow him all over the hospital on crutches. And Bill was pretty ornery. Sometimes he'd take off with a dead run, and I'd have to keep up with the crutches. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, Bill... uh... What's what's the next thing that you would like our listeners to know about your story? Well, you know, I, I really don't know. I, as I say, I was in Dibble, and then uh, I, I was in Hammond, and then Dibble, and then McCormick down in Pasadena. And I was fortunate because well, I, I was from Pasadena, and my dad lived in Pasadena. But uh, that's where they did uh, most of the plastic surgery and uh, took bone out of my hip and put it in my knee. And uh, this all took a lot of time, you know, between operations and stuff like that. And certainly time to heal. So I tell you what, Bill, let's go to break. When we come back, I have some more questions that I would like to ask you. This is Kim Munson with the World War II Project. We are talking with World War II veteran uh, Bill Galbraith. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com. All of these shows are archived there. And it's a real honor to be talking with World War II veteran Bill Galbraith. Uh, Bill, it's just great to have you on the show today. Thank you. You might be interested in how I met my wife. Oh, well, yes, I would be very interested to hear how you met your wife. What happened? Uh, After Normandy, we went on leave to, I went on leave to Scotland. And I met my wife in a dance in Scotland, in in, uh, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Okay. And uh, it was really funny because uh, there was no drinking in this dance we were at. But every time you would go to the lavatory, the Scotsman went in there with Scotch whiskey and would give us a drink. Okay. So my wife thought I had terrible kidneys because <laughs> I kept leaving her and going to the bathroom, and I left my jacket with her to make sure she didn't leave. <laughs> and so she asked me if I wanted to go home with her, and I said, definitely. I got this 
shots and got to sleep with her brother Owen, <laughs> which wasn't exactly what I had in mind. <laughs> I guess anyway, not. Anyway, I stayed about three days with them, and I met an Air Force guy, said that he was sure I could ride back to England in their B-17. And someone had given me a statue of St. Patrick, because my middle name is Patrick. And anyway, uh, I loaded everything on that B-17, the statue of St. Patrick and all the gear I had. And when the pilot got there, the, uh, the sergeant said, I said, this paratrooper could ride back to England with us. He says, sure can, have you got to shoot? <laughs> you can't borrow anything from the British. So I ended up not being able to ride back to England in the B-17, and I left everything on that B-17. And to this day, I know they would have never got rid of that statue of Patrick because it would have been an omen. So I was always curious whether the plane got through the war and get shot down on the next mission. But I had no idea what, you know, flight, uh, what squadron I was or anything about it. So that's a mystery that I've never found out anything about. But then I got, when I got back to England, I got broke. I was a T4 in uh, S3. That's a... Uh, Education and, and uh, for, for for the troops and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. projects. Uh, and uh, but I, I didn't lose my job. I just lost the, the uh, rating. And you'd lost that because you were gone too long, or why? What there? I, I said you lost that because why? Well, uh, I made an enemy of Bobak who was asked to. So, uh, actually, I had called them and told them I was going to have a ride on the B-17. I didn't know what, you know, what context I could make when I got to England. And so, actually, they were told, uh, and they shouldn't have made me AWL at all because they had information that I was on my way. And how did you get back since you didn't get to ride on the B-17? Well, I took a train. Okay. So I was that much later, you know. It, uh, so anyway, I was late getting back and got broke. And uh, so when I jumped into Holland, I actually jumped in as a as a private. Okay. Well, what about your wife? Uh, so you ended up staying at their place for three days. You met her at a dance. I didn't get hit until I got in Holland, honey. I'm sorry, what, what Bill? What there? Well, I wanted to find out more about your wife. About my wife? Yeah. Well, she came over on Christmas morning, 1948, and we were married at St. Matthew's in Long Beach. And uh, we had ten children, seven boys and three girls. Wow. So it was a very, very successful marriage. Very successful. I would say so. 
I would say so. And how did you talk her into marrying you? I mean, you did you continue to... Oh, to... I, uh, finally, after I got out of the hospital, I, I, I wanted to wait until I got a job. So I got out in June 47, and I had a job within a week. And uh, I managed... Uh, I was working at Graham Brothers running a batch plant. And uh, I sent for uh, sent her the money to come over, and she got here on Christmas morning, 1948, and we were married on the tw- 28th of December in St. Matthew's Catholic Church in Long Beach. Wow, that is a beautiful, a beautiful story. Uh, so what? So you got married, you had uh, 10 children, you got your job. Um, have you been back to Normandy? Well, when did I go back? Yeah. Have you taken some other trips back? Oh, yes, but I don't remember just what year or anything. I did jump back into Normandy on the 50th. I think I saw something about that. And uh, yes, how did, how did I that go? I jumped about 41 other guys. On the 50th, but we were jumping the new square shoes. I didn't attempt to jump until I, they got the square shoes that you could maneuver and uh, generally landed a little bit easier than a regular shoe. I bet that was pretty thrilling. So you would have uh, probably been on the 50th around 70 or so, yes? Yes, that was exactly 70. Wow. I was 20 when I went in, you know, uh, on June 6th, and so 50 years later, uh, uh, I was 70 years old, when I, and I landed this time by St. Maria Gleese. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this show that I'm doing uh, regarding the World War II uh, project is three years ago, Bill, I was in Normandy for the D-Day celebration, and we were at St. Maryglise. And what is so fascinating to me, Bill, is how the people of Normandy still appreciate and love you guys for what you did back in 1944. Well, uh, when I was just there this last June, everybody was, uh, in fact, all boys except Michael was over there with me. But not with me, they were just over there. I had went with a group out of Palm uh, uh, Springs uh, that somebody had got together and paid all our way over there. And uh, I was 19 of us, I believe. And uh, I was uh, in, a, in a hotel down in Cherbourg. Okay. But I got to see my family up in St. Maria Galice when we were there. And uh, it was... Everybody said how blessed I was <laughs> that was with me with that group because there was so many of my family over there. Well, and the church there, did you go into the church at St. Maryglise where they have the stained glass window that is a tribute to to you guys, you paratroopers? Did you happen to see that? Yes, I've, uh, I've talked to the mayor and all that people of St. Maryglise. <laughs> and... Uh, 
They actually had that guy hanging up there on the church, but he's not hanging on the same corridor or anything. <laughs> they got him, but they had he shows up from the square instead. Right. And I understand that he actually wasn't on that corner of the church. Well, and for people but that they have a, a mannequin up there with on a player suit, and it's white, which it should be camouflaged. <laughs> But evidently, they never thought of that. Well, and what you're talking about, Bill, is the the church in St. Marigolese. When was that 101st Airborne? One of the guys he got hung up on the. It's very tall. It was 82nd. The 82nd. Okay, he got the hung guy up that on was the. Hung up on the, on that church was 82nd. Yeah. And he watched the whole battle uh, from there, and the and still to this day. They have, as you mentioned, a mannequin up on the top of this uh, tower of this church in honor of, uh, again, the 80s. It was the 82nd Airborne and the 101st that uh, jumped yeah, that's in. that's right. That jumped in on D-Day. Uh, so any other stories that you would like to share with us, Bill uh, Galbraith, about, uh, you know, your time in, in Europe during World War II? Well, I was, uh, when we were at St. Maria Galicia, I'd like to mention one of the Phillips girls, um, uh, Faith, was there, and uh, they show up at many things, and uh, they're very patriotic. They go to uh, uh, different, uh, you know, things like Normandy and, and uh, um, I'm going to say something, my mind goes blank. Uh, back to Koa, they they always show up there also. But uh, she has an absolutely beautiful voice, and she sang, and uh, actually joined us in a in a six by six truck and uh, rode with us for a ways. But that was really a thrill because she's a very pretty girl, <laughs> and very fortunate to know her. Uh, it sounds like it was quite the celebration uh, for the 75th anniversary uh, when you went back to Normandy. Uh, Bill, just, just a few other questions. Today, what would you say to the young people of today as you look about at your experiences over your lifetime? Uh, to the people over there or here? Here. Here? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know really what to say, but I, I think if the, 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 the people, the, the children we have today were every bit as good as we did if they, if they had to. Everybody says it's the greatest generation, but I don't think we're any different than any of the rest of the Americans. I think they would perform just as well as we did. And what about the American flag? When you see the American flag, what goes through your mind, Bill? What the American what, honey? When you when you see the American flag, what goes through your mind? It always inspires me, dear. Well, it always inspires me as well, too. Uh, so, Bill Galbraith, this has just been really an honor to get to to talk with you today, and I'm so grateful to our mutual friend Joe Conway who has connected us, because each of you have such an individual story. Uh, your memory, how old are you, Bill? I'm 95. 
your memory to remember these details has been absolutely uh, amazing. And I so thank you for sharing your story with me and I, with I our listeners. I take you every place I've ever been, dear. I think that you could. Is there anything else you want to share, Bill, before we sign off? I have a very, very good family that I'm proud of. I think that's quite an accomplishment. My wife uh, did a pretty good job of raising 10 children. Oh, my gosh. She left me back in March 94. And uh, so I miss her very much. Well, she sounds like she's an amazing woman. So, Bill Galbraith, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate this interview. Thank you, dear. Okay, and this is Kim Munson signing off. Be sure and tune in same time, same place next week. Thank you. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.